Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Thank You and Good Night podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Julia. And this week, we are covering everyone's favorite two-sweater-wearing man, Abe Weissman. Woohoo! Here in this episode, you're going to hear us talk a little bit about him, his ideology, his potential youth activities and what that would mean both for him within the context of the show and the actual historical period, as well as his relationship with Rose in what is, in my opinion, the greatest OTP on this show. Going to delve into just a little bit about his transition as a person, because we see a lot of development between Abe um, from the first season to the third season and really get a glimpse into the flourishing nature of his character through little details that weren't there at the very, very outset. So join us as we examine this unique individual with all of his passions and irascibility. first place to start is with the general existential question. Who is a Boisman? This is the real fundamental question that everyone, including us, really needs to know because I feel like we get little glimpses into Abe here and there and, and see little pieces of who he is, but don't really know who he is. So I think one of the more interesting things about this show as it relates to Abe, and we'll talk about this in our next episode with Rose, is how much of their backgrounds we don't know. We get little tiny hints dropped in here and there as to what they were like in their youth, and we see them kind of rediscovering parts of it as the show goes along, but in a lot of ways, it's a completely blank slate before the show starts. But one of the major areas we know information about and we find out slowly as the show develops is at some point in his youth, Abe was a communist organizer and a rebel rouser who put stickers on fruit in protest for labor unions. He was friends with playwrights who had ultimately become blacklisted. And at some point, he goes into academia because he becomes a professor of mathematics at Columbia before joining Bell Labs. We also know that Bell Lab vets him and either is totally not concerned at all by his past, even though they're disconcerted by Midge's two misdemeanor charges, or whatever Abe did is so buried and is so separated from him, even Bell Labs doesn't know, which I think is an interesting thing, is that as we start the show, we don't have any real idea of who he is, and neither does his employer, who he's clearly wanted for an extended period of time to work for. And so we see, as the show progresses, this revelation of who he was in the past versus who we meet. It's almost like we've met a different Abe than who he used to be. And that other original Abe is kind of slowly coming out, which I think leads to the question of who is he? Is he this family man who presents a conservative traditional front, right, with the good academia job and the great money job with Bell Labs and this patriot working on these saving devices for Bell Labs with the computer that learns to sing for whatever purpose he's using it, right, who's raised a son who's gone into the MI or the CIA, whether or not he knows it, right, who's done all of these things to uphold this traditional life with his wife who secretly is the one bankrolling it, but nevertheless, they fulfill these traditional conservative roles, or is he this passionate man we kind of see throughout the show underneath poking his head out, right? I joked at the beginning, he's irascible. He's de- he feels things deeply, and we see that. He's deeply protective of his family. He's very protective of his daughter. He's incredibly protective of his wife. I imagine he feels similarly about Noah, even though we don't see it. We see the inverse, right? We see how hurt he is by the secret life Noah's been living, Right? So we see these glimpses of this fiery passion, which I think is emblematic of that idealistic youth. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. I, I just kind of my my most pressing question in this situation is 
how did he become so polished? You know what I mean? Because especially if the show is giving us this glimpse into the fact that he appreciates this life of rebellion and at one point was a different man than he is now, how does one go from being totally, um, you know, leading the uprising, if you will, um, by, like you said, putting stickers on fruit to being this professor at Columbia and working at Bell Labs and the development of this computer for whatever purpose it's supposed to have. I, I mean, to me, work at Bell Labs symbolizes some sense that you're willing to move a government forward in their objectives, uh, that you're, you know, taking on a role of some sort of really important mission. Um, and, um, you know, the fact that you know, we see Noah as well kind of having this ambition towards advancing governmental interests. I don't think that comes out of nowhere. Um, so I feel like Abe has somewhere down the line totally changed his personality. But then that leads to the question of what in his life was the catalyst to make him become this well-polished individual? You know, because we see how he really values, especially when he's with these beatniks, we, we see that he values kind of this organized chaos, if you will, that he wants to have an impact and he wants to see something change. We see that he's in total opposition to the status quo with politicians. He hates Kennedy. He hates Phyllis, Phyllis Schlafly. Um, I mean, there's so much to him that screams, I don't like the status quo, I want to see a change, but he also is so pristine, you know? And, and right. so I feel like there are just some inconsistencies here with his character. I think that there are two possible answers to that question. I think the first is the one that comes up in that fight between him and Rose in 3-1, where she goes, when you married me, right? When he asked the question, when did I become this man? And she goes, when, I, when you married me. And he goes, I did not say that. And he's very explicit. He, in his mind, has not linked the two. Um, because Rose clearly is the moneyed one. She's clearly the one who lived the life of security and whatever. And it becomes in 3-2 when he's talking about how, like, she can't slum it. I can slum it. But, she, it, like, no, Abe, you're the one who needs Zelda to rub your feet down to get rid of your calluses and the toad in the... Like, you're the one who needs the life of luxury. It is not your wife, right? Like... That becomes super clear. She had just come back from her Gaelic Hooverville, as you so lovingly called it, or not so lovingly called it, right? Like, it's very clear on this show that of the two of them, Rose could totally survive in, a, in these circumstances far better than he can. As a matter of fact, she's the one who gets them out of the Maisel's house later on. So I think one answer you could potentially give to that is he took the security and the money that she was providing right? And everything she was doing to build a life for him and for them, and he leaned into it too hard. I think the other answer, and I think it's an answer that reads much closer to what we know about history, and kind of what I was alluding to with it's buried so deep Bell Labs doesn't seem to find it, is I think he realized that he needed to stop and hide it. I think between the Red Scare I think between anti-Semitism on the rise globally, I think between what we now know in that period as McCarthyism, which also is obviously involved in the show itself era. I'm, I'm not saying that this doesn't predate McCarthyism. I think all of these things are reflective of, particularly given the understanding we have of that fight also in 3-1 where Rose is mocking him with your beatnik hero Jack Krakowak, like he hasn't stopped being a radical. Like, the two of them within that marriage have clearly had those conversations, right? He makes the comment at the end of the first season, right? I, we've changed. We're different than who we were, but I, I still love her. I, she still loves me, right? We're, we're still ultimately the same people, even though we've outwardly changed. And our roles have changed. And what we do has changed. I'm almost wondering, and again, it's why I highlighted in that original introduction that Bell Labs is only concerned about Midge. They're not concerned about him. And, you know, his friend Asher in the third season makes it clear that, like, he did everything he could to keep Abe's name off a list. I think at some point, Rose and Abe made the executive decision 
to stop him from being vocal and to stop him from doing it and to go so far underground with it. I I think I, I, that's what happened. I, I, I think you raise an interesting point. And I, I just want to speak a little bit to the first part of what you said about Rose being, you know, made a, the, the one who comes from money and really, you know, probably is what inspired him to be more prim and proper. To that, I also have to wonder to what extent, because we know that Rose is also a little bit rebellious, right? And I don't think that she necessarily would have wanted to be with a person like Abe when they met if he was involved in these beatnik activities, if she didn't hold some of the same sentiment. Um, but we also know that she's very free-spirited and eclectic based on the way she runs off to Paris, based on what she studied in Paris, Um Based, you know, just generally on the way that she's not respected within her family. I think that would cause kind of some tension as well, because when she goes to Oklahoma and we see that it's pretty much a gentleman's club there and how, you know, they don't respect grandmama and they don't respect her. Um, that's really kind of indicative of the fact that she probably feels alienated by that life of wealth. And so maybe perhaps, you know, Abe says he can be slumming it he knows how to slum it and perhaps that's when they first met that's how it was that she was attracted to the idea that he was able to slum it because she was used to this life of money but was really drawn to less of that lifestyle and more of the Abe Weissman lifestyle but to your second point about the fact that you think that they executively agreed that they had to hide it I think that's probably more hitting the nail on the head here. Um, I don't know what Rose's political beliefs are. I don't know if she holds political beliefs. I think it's fairly safe to assume they're similar to Abe's. I, I would assume they're similar. I, I don't. I don't. I don't think she's as far to whatever extreme mm -hmm. he is. I don't think she's this conservative figure she's outwardly portraying. If for no other reason, I think to your earlier point, right? We, know, we don't know when they met. We know based on the 31-year comet, either in the late 1959 era or 1960, they got married either in 1928 or 1929, which means she would have been a bohemian in Paris in the interwar era, um, which is a fairly liberal era in Europe, which is where she ran off to to escape, as you mentioned, her overbearing house. So it's fair to assume she, at least when they met, was as liberal as he was. And I don't necessarily think, given the way she acts now, which to your point is with a lot of independence within her household and a demand for equality and respect from her husband, which women at that time were not demanding necessarily across the board. Or we, it wasn't an expectation that women demanded that much equality and respect for what they were doing. Certainly with the way the two of them raised their daughter, you know, clearly Rose wants her to get married, but she has a mind of her own. And like they in no way shape or they're upset that she doesn't have more of intellectual curiosity, right? Like it's it's not something to be ashamed of. A woman with a mind is not something to be ashamed of in that household, which clearly means her mind isn't something to be ashamed of in that household. So I think to this long convoluted thing, I think it's safe to assume that they're fairly politically aligned. I don't think they're exactly aligned. I don't think she would in any way, shape, or form ever say she was a communist or, as I will make the argument later, Abe is actually an anarchist. I don't think, they'd, I don't think she'd ever say that she was either of those. But I, I definitely think if you pushed her to it, I think she would say things that would be read as liberal. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I definitely agree. I, I think that Rose, despite the conservative facade, is definitely a liberal figure. But... um. Just kind of to the end of, you know, the extent of how, you know, they're repressing these ideologies, it makes me wonder, to that end of repression, you know, why the decision was made. And I think you hit the nail on the head with McCarthyism and stuff like that, because obviously the consequences of being put through a trial for being a communist are severe, you know, a lot of times punishable by death. Um, so I, I understand that, you know, there would be kind of this pressing need to, to mask it, especially, you know, as, as a Jewish individual too. I mean, 
Jewish people were tried all the time for being communists, which fundamentally doesn't make sense. And I'll talk about that a little bit later on. But, um, you know, that's that's kind of like the the stream of thought um, at the time. And and I think to that end, you're you're really right. And you hit the nail on the head that this probably is just kind of representative of politics in the era and how there's this need to really kind of take a step back and be careful and tread lightly with what you do and what you say because you don't want the government to come after you. So maybe she was the one who ultimately ended up mellowing him out in that sense. But I definitely think that and again, we don't know her political ideology, but if I had to guess, I would say she's pretty liberal. Um, but ultimately, like, I think that they probably carried a lot of the same beliefs at some point. Yeah, I think to your point about her mellowing him out, and I, I'm i going to mention two things here. And I think this is kind of a way to you know wrap this up and potentially move into another topic. The one thing that I think is so true about this marriage and this relationship on the show is we see them constantly pulling each other back from the brink, right? He gives up his two jobs, right? And she like pulls him back and goes, dude, we live here. Like, what are you going to do now? Like, you know, it's fine. I support you quitting jobs that you hate, but like you better come up with a backup plan here, right? She runs off and loses her trust fund and he pulls her back, right? He threatens people with cheese knife. She sends jam, right? He gets Jimmy fired from his law firm. She gets him hired back. She scares everyone out of the art department by pointing out the sexist reality and he gets her put back in the art classes. Like, we see these two as such a yin and yang, right? Like she smooths him out when he gets irascible. He pulls her back when she gets angry. She rescues them from the Maisel house and gets them to Miami, right? Like they <laughs> constantly are doing these things for one another. And I think when you see that Rose is the practical one, like if there's a word to describe Rose, it's practicality. For sure. Right? Like she does run off to Paris and we will talk about that in her episode and like what that kind of break from her normal behavior actually means and reveals about her anger and everything going on. She is the practical one in that household. And I could see her going, you are a professor, that is considered a position of power that people went after during the McCarthy era. Academics were targeted. They were Jewish. As you had mentioned, Jews were targeted for multiple reasons as a rise of anti-Semitism generally in this, in this country and around the world in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, right? It just unfortunately was a fact of life. It's still a fact of life. And so I could see practical Rose who has the money and who has the social clout or had the ability to create the social clout saying, we're burying this. You can believe whatever you want to believe. You can tell me whatever you want. I will support you ideologically, but you're going to get the two of us in trouble. You're going to get this family in trouble. And I could see him going along with it because she pulls him back from the brink, which I'm going to mention the second point here. That conversation in 3-6 between him and Asher on the beach where Asher talks about the fact that I was very careful to keep your name out of everything. And Abe said, we'd be fine. I think Abe wouldn't have minded it if Rose or someone else hadn't pointed out what it would have meant for that family. I think he's confident when he says it that ultimately he would have been fine, right? That the family would have survived. They would have, been, they would have made it through the other side. And I think that's true. I don't think had he ever have gone down in the McCarthy era or anything to that nature, Rose ever would have left him or he would have lost his family, right? Like I'm not, I mean, obviously this is conjecture at this point, but like based on the way that we see this relationship, I literally don't think there's anything Abe could have done that would have caused her to do anything other than stand by him. But I think he, looking at it from his idealism point of view, believed I would have made it through. I was in the right. And I, I think it would have taken, based on that conversation, I think it really would have taken her going, no, 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 no. Like, you're not throwing away our future. You're not throwing away your kid's future. Like, we're taking a step back here. I honestly think that that might be what's happened. And I think... Midge having a life and living her life and being true to herself and succeeding in it, I think is finally the thing that snaps Abe out 
of whatever repression he's been doing. I think it snaps Rose out of whatever repression she's been living. I think the two of them looking at their daughter openly and successfully living this life and saying what she wants and being successful with it, I think is enough of a wake up call for him to realize McCarthy's gone. People are celebrating this. Free speech is free speech again. And with people like Phyllis Schlafly on the rise, I'm needed again. Well, to that to that point too, and I'm glad you brought that up, I think that Midge having this career is the moment of liberation for Avon Rose. I mean, I forget what the episode is, but like when they're talking, at, like when Midge is talking to Avon Rose um, and, you know, sh she's talking about how she gave up the trust fund and, you know, you made me passionate, you know? And so Rose, like, Rose says that to, to Midge. Like, that's exactly the point that you're you're hitting. Like, that they feel so confident now and comfortable being able to embrace who they really are. I think Midge is really the driving inspiration, you know, for Abe connecting with Lenny Bruce and then being in inspired to take on these beatniks that he meets and then, you know, create this nonsense newspaper. And, you know, I, I mean, I feel like all of this is just kind of really shaping the Weissmen into more well-rounded characters. So, like, thank goodness for Midge taking on this comedy career and really being outspoken and learning to say what she wants and using her voice because... In turn, she's giving the Weissman the voice back that they ultimately ended up repressing at one point or another. And I think as much as Midge hates to think she's her parents, because I think Midge really does hate the idea that she's her mother or her father. And I'm, I'm, we all have that tendency where I think it's just natural that we all go, oh my God, I'm becoming my mother, right? I love, for the record, if my mom is listening to this, I love my mom. I really do. And I think it's a great compliment if people tell me I'm like my mother. I, I genuinely do. But I think culturally, we all have this idea, right? Of like, oh my God. I think that's exactly how Midge thinks. And I think particularly true when you consider, um, what you would call it, that fight in 3-8. I think it's particularly true with the way that they fight. And again, we'll have this conversation in that next episode because you and I have very different views of that fight. But I think fundamentally embedded in that fight is she hates the idea that she's her mother. I, I think Midge doesn't get that voice, though, even if she only discovers it after Joel leaving her, but for the way she was raised. And I think maybe the last act of rebellion left in the Weissman household was raising children who had minds of their own. Because even if neither one of them approve of what Noah's doing, and it's clear, neither one of them approve of their son who works for the CIA. That is clear. Even while Abe is working at Bell Labs, he is not okay with that. Right? And Rose is not okay with that. Even if the two of them hate that Noah is working for the CIA, they raised a child who did that. Right? Got a job with the CIA, is working secretly with the CIA, has kept that job a secret for goodness knows how long from them. From right? his like, parents! From his parents, from his mother, <laughs> who, it is to be noted, got that out of Astrid when she knew there was something to get there from Astrid in, like, 30 seconds. Like, not saying Astrid is weak. A lot of people have caved to Rose Weissman on this show, but the fact that Noah hadn't caved is hella impressive. I'm just it's pointing amazing. it out there. It is amazing. I almost wonder if their last rebellious act was within the domestic sphere, which is... We aren't going to publicly change the world anymore. I'm not publicly going to be allowed to rebel rouse, but I'm going to raise children who will raise hell. Right? Because I think when he says that, you know, like, my children aren't who I thought they were, which Abe expresses at some point, right? I think he thought he did that. Like, I think he thought he raised hellraisers, and I think he's realizing with the son who's a government spook, as he calls him, he certainly didn't raise one there. <laughs> And so, like, where did it go wrong? Where did we go wrong in what we were trying to impart on them? Like, how did my child come out with no intellectual curiosity whatsoever? How did your child come out with no intellectual curiosity whatsoever? Why does your child you know? want to work for the government when this is something I'm fundamentally opposed to? Right. Like, I, like you know, I think I think that is so... 
I think it's so embedded in that. I, I, I don't know. But we can get off the existential, you know, why is Abe slowly revealing himself like an onion question and maybe move on to, is Abe a communist? Or what is Abe's political ideology? Next. Perfect segue. So our next area of discussion is we've kind of been talking around what is his political ideology. We've also kind of talked around what is Rose's political ideology. But I think there's a real question to be asked here. Is Abe Weissman genuinely a communist? No. <laughs> Easy answer. <laughs> Elaborate. No. Abe Weissman. Abe. Oh, my gosh. If I could speak. Uh, Abe Weissman is definitely not a communist. Um, and the reason why I say this, I hinted at this before, but... I fundamentally do not believe that communism and Judaism go hand in hand. They are basically the antithesis of one another. Um, and one of the things to consider, you know, is that, and we actually talked about this while we were prepping the episode, is Rose talking about how, you know, Abe, how Abe wishes that he could have been, you know, taking down Stalin, right? Well, well, it's the, I think it's the Che Guevara comment specifically. I'm sorry you're not Che Guevara. That's ridiculous. Che Guevara isn't Jewish. Right, exactly. Um, and, um, you know, like, I feel like this is like a particular point to note that there's an inherent distinction between, you know, communism and Judaism and, and the limits that are you know, between each ideological belief. Um, you know, a, a lot of the communist ideology is like anti-religion and taking down anything that has to associate with, with religion. Uh, you know, the godless commies. And I wouldn't say that Abe is quote unquote a good Jew, right? Like he he doesn't he tests. Oh no, he and Rose are definitely performative. They're performative. If, if they're that. performative, but but they definitely meet the characteristics of a lot of New York Jews at the time. And so, you know, they practice Judaism as they believe fit, but that doesn't necessarily challenge their Jewish faith. It's as a Jew, subjective for how you would like to practice the faith. And so when you try and insert communism, which is something that kind of is a godless ideology, the two just fundamentally do not work with one another. So I tend to err on the side that, you know, Abe likes the idea of rebellion, which maybe was indicative of time with communism because of the way that McCarthyism shaped communism to be with the Red Scare and, and everything else. Um, and, you know, a lot of very prominent individuals became communists because it was an act of rebellion and, and they could not stand the United States government. But I think Abe is more of an anarchist. <laughs> And that's what I was going to say. I think that's the conversation we were having while we were prepping this episode is I totally think he's an anarchist. The first comment I'm going to make is when I say that they're performative, I mean, not that I'm questioning their faith or their religious devotion. I just mean like Rose makes such a big deal of seeing and being seen every time they're in temple that it's there is the religious aspect of it. And then there is the performance of the religion aspect of it. And like, that's what I mean by performative, right? Like the big deal about the rabbi and everybody in town knowing about the rabbi, like she very clearly, I don't necessarily, I'm not going to question Abe, although Moish says he's a non-believer. She, at least, at bare minimum, is like, there is my religious activity, and then there is everyone seeing my religious activity. That's what I mean. Like, I don't want to be seen like I'm slagging on anybody's faith, because I'm not. Um, also, they're fictional characters, but nevertheless. I, <laughs> I think he's an anarchist, and it goes back to that fight. I think the way that they have that exchange, right? I'm sorry you're not Che Guevara. That's ridiculous. Che Guevara isn't Jewish. I'm sorry you weren't there to bring Stalin down, right? And he's like, what do you, like, he just gives her a look of like, that's ridiculous, right? I'm sorry you're not your beatnik hero Jack Krakowak, right? Like, she's pointing out all of these anti-establishment figures, right? To your earlier point, we know he hates Kennedy. Now, he hates Kennedy because his father's an anti-Semite, but he hates Kennedy. He hates the Kennedys, right? This ideological political class. He'd rather move to France than vote for Richard Nixon. 
which granted he does move to France, but still he does do that. Yes, he does move to France in spite in spite of how much he hates France. But he hates France more than he hates Richard Nixon, which is saying something, Mm -hmm. right? So he clearly doesn't like the Republican Party or the Republican leaders. He's opposed to Phyllis Schlafly and the rise of which she represents. Which is rare because she's a xenophobe. Owen is a horrible human to a lot of different groups. And I'm not, I am not saying it isn't a fair hatred of Phyllis Schlafly or a fair criticism, right? Like, I'm, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying like, he's aware enough of politics to know that, right? His, his critical voice in his op-ed, and I think the reason why the Village Voice, which is a notoriously New York liberal rebel rousing publication, Right. It gets a shout out in the song La Vie Bohème, which for those keeping track of the number of times things referenced in La Vie Bohème from Rent show up in Maisel, the village voice is the second one. Lenny Bruce is the other one. Yes, I am totally playing this game at home as if it's a drinking game. (laughs) That's a great idea. Wow. I'm a huge musical theater fan. Like this is fun to me to see how many different things referenced at this point show up later in Maisel. Because parts of these periods overlap overlap with Mm -hmm. what they're talking about. But anyway, that's a separate conversation. Um, I was totally on a point before I I did that. Oh, okay. (laughs) All of these things that they reference are like these rebel-rousing things, right? I think he's anti-establishment. I think he's anti-government. And I think at the time, the only way you were anti-establishment and anti-government were to be a part of the communist cause, right? We know, based on what he and Asher say, that they wanted to, like, support labor unions and support the people. And I think if Abe's idea of communism is giving power to the people, I think it's totally valid, right? He talks about he was a man of science and a man of ideas, right? And he doesn't need all these creature comforts, but clearly he likes the creature comforts. He needs them more than his wife does, which I think is all indicative of he really doesn't believe in the social, the socioeconomic policy of communism. Exactly. He does support women. He does support people of different minorities. We see that. We see him in his classes. We see him brag about hiring them. Right. We know that. You know, I think the person Rose loves second in the world to Abe is Shai Baldwin. <laughs> like, like I'm not necessarily saying that that is indicative of the fact the woman doesn't have prejudices. I'm sure she probably does. But I'm just saying, like, from a social policy aspect of communism, I do think that there might be some alignment. But I think fundamentally he is an anarchist. I think he's anti-government. I think he's anti-establishment. And I think that's really why he has such a hard time with the fact that his son is, quote, a government spook. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think that that the Noah situation ties in perfectly. Um, you know, just this general lack of acceptance of the fact that he works for the CIA, I think, speaks volumes. Because the CIA is perhaps one of the most prominent, like, doing the dirty work of the government. Uh, you know, from all of the covert operations and spying and what have you like that to a T screams establishment. Um, And so when we have Abe wanting to be so outspoken about like the political system and, uh, you know, unwilling to give in to, because I I haven't seen a single political candidate that he actually does support. You know, we haven't gotten anything from him about like who he actually would vote for right we know he won't vote for we also don't know who rose would vote for right because when the fight about the kennedys comes up right she says don't bait your father that's true just let him win which would be indicative of the fact that like letting him win is letting the conversation die like i have been through this argument enough just that's true yeah i mean honestly fundamentally we don't know anything about rose's political activism in the sense of candidates she would support either but i think it really says a lot about abe in the fact that like he's very critical but doesn't offer any type of solution right it seems like his solution is just which is why i think the critic job oh it's top notch but i think it's just he wants to criticize and he doesn't want to find any way to make it better which to me alludes to the fact that he's just very anti-government in general so I do also have to wonder, you know, is he a voter? Does he regularly take part in his civic obligations at that time? 
I, I know we're coming up at a time right now as we're recording this that, you know, we're in the midst of a crazy election cycle. So this naturally is the question that I'm asking in the back of my mind, you know, is Abe responsible, taking his civic responsibility seriously? Or is he just someone who's willing to subvert the system because he doesn't agree with it in general um, and would likely be, you know, registered a communist if he could be without it being a problem for him that would get him in trouble with the government? I think, okay, so I have had, a conversation with other people in my household because of the TikTok trend of like if they lived in 2020 who would they be voting for and like I know you and I during the primary had a conversation about which democratic primary member these people would support <laughs> um or member of the republican primary for the record for the record I totally have all three people who live in the Weissman apartment as supporting democratic candidates just because of what we think we know about them um I, I I definitely think Rose votes. She just screams to me to be the kind of person who understands she wasn't necessarily... We don't know when she was born, but I'm going to go ahead and say she wasn't necessarily born with the right to vote. Um, given when we know that the right to vote came in terms of the history and chrono chronological period of time and we know she got married... She definitely is born in a period of time before women could vote. Now, we don't know how long she has conscious memories of a period of time before that was in a conversation, right? Um, we know Midge votes. Midge jokes about she would have been a horrible feminist, but clearly for her to have had those opinions and voted for Kennedy. Well, I was going like, to say she endorsed she Kennedy, so I mean. Right. Vote for <laughs> Kennedy, right, I think is a clear sign that at least Midge in that household votes. And I don't think Midge would vote if neither of her parents were voters. Because I, I, I think Midge is rebellious, but isn't that rebellious, right? Because if we think about before we get to that period of time in the show, right? Before the show starts, she's emulating her parents' life. Like, that's what she wants, right? And she clearly has voted before Kennedy. So clearly someone in her household voted. And I think you're right. I don't think it's Abe. I think Abe... I think Abe is a conscientious objector. I think so, objector. too. I'm with you. Perfect. Great political science I think he's a conscientious term. objector. I'm with you. I mean, I totally agree. Well, and I'm using that because, and we're not going to get into this because it's going to be, we're already way too deep into this episode to have this conversation. I don't, I don't think he would have served in World War II had he been young enough to. Because we also, we know his age. We know he was born in 1898. I don't necessarily know if, Obviously, they didn't draft in World War II, like we, to the same extent that they did in Vietnam. Um, I, I don't necessarily think Abe would have been young enough at that period of time to have successfully been in a position where he could have served because he clearly didn't serve when he was younger. So I, I don't necessarily think he would have been the kind of person to have enlisted, even if he was of the age to have enlisted, right? I, I, I think clearly he hated Germany. Like, I mean, fundamentally, as a Jew, how could you not? <laughs> I don't think there's any question. I don't think there's any question he supported the war effort. Like, point blank, full stop, period. Right? I, I, I'm not I'm not questioning that. But I think had it been a draft and had he been eligible, I think he honestly would have conscientiously objected from civil service in a, in a military capacity. Because I, 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 going back to I don't think he likes the government. I don't think he'd want to be a part of the Well, US that's military. what I was about to say, too. I mean, just fundamentally, because he disagrees so firmly with the government, why would he want to be involved in the government's war? Yeah, it's the government's war. Granted, totally, I think, supported the point of it. <laughs> like, I, I definitely don't, I'm not saying that Abe Weissman in any way, shape, or form was not fervently anti-Germany in the 1930s and 40s. I honestly have a feeling he was going around telling everybody. I think part of the reason why he hates the Moish story so much about getting the people out of Germany is because A probably was the person going around telling all of his friends, get anybody you know out of Germany, right? And no one listened to him. Like, honestly, like, that's that's kind of how, like, with the way that he mentions, right, like, Rose's German heritage, like, there is an awareness that he has of that family's connection mm -hmm. to what happened. Like, I, I see him aware of it in a way that I think was is indicative of the fact that he knew it was a problem and probably was sending an alarm bell. So I'm not saying... He would, I mean, he would, yeah, he would definitely know that it's a problem. As a Jew, any Jew would know the trauma, even if you do not firsthand experience the trauma, for sure. Anyway, 
I think now is a good time for us to transition into my favorite fictional couple. <laughs> in advance for how much of a fangirl I'm going to sound in this section. But I truly love this relationship. And I love it for a lot of reasons. The first, as I explained, is they're this perfect yin and yang of their personal lives. Like we see in their personal lives, one goes off the deep end and the other one is right there pulling them back. And that there's this real sense of support and love, that they are a real team and a real partnership. But the other thing I love so much is the fact that they grow together as people even after all of this time. And I'm going to use two different points to talk about that because they both, they're both, I think, so deeply revealing. The first is when she runs off to Paris and he goes and comes back with her and has come back seemingly changed and with a deeper understanding. Before she leaves for Paris, they clearly end up in a dust-up to put it politely, but it's a dust up because he's broken the, he's broken the contract. Her contract with him is I will love you and I will support you as long as I am your partner. And that's very clear in that fight they have in the apartment in Paris, right? You have no need for my input. My daughter has no need for my guidance. I'm alone in New York, right here. I have other things. I can be something else in New York because of the way New York society works. I am your wife. That is my job. That is who I am, right? I run the social life. I have this world outside, which she does in Little Dress in the Rose episode. But fundamentally, her full-time job is Midge's mother and Noah's mother and Abe's wife. And the minimum she requires to do that job is to be his equal partner. And when he chooses in that fourth episode of the first season to cave on the TVs and not to tell her that Joel came back is the moment he breaks that contract. And she knows it. And she's like, I'm not going to play this game. You want me, you come get me. I need to see remorse, right? I didn't, she says so beautifully to Midge, I didn't ask him to say he's sorry. I didn't ask him to come here. He's perfectly capable of taking care of himself. I'm not abandoning him. I didn't think about leaving him. I'm making him think about what he's done for a good 30 seconds, which is- Doghousing him. Right. I'm doghousing him, literally, in New York while I'm in Paris. And you see, he freaks out and can't handle it. That's the entirety of that first Paris episode is she is rubbing in his face how horrible he is at this to drive home her point. You do need me. I am your equal in every important way to keep you alive and to keep you sane and to keep you happy. Like that is what we are. And he learns. He gets it, right? He actually hears her when she says like, you have deeply hurt me. I have nothing else. And he, he learns, he supports her. He gets her into the art classes. He keeps her in the art classes. I mean, it helps that she's right. And he's like, damn, you're right. Like you made my job 10 times easier. <laughs> High five, right? In that scene where he, he, he takes on his arch nemesis in the Columbia. I don't even know where that guy works in Columbia because he's in every department, but that's a separate conversation. <laughs> but he also gets them to dance classes at Arthur Murray. And you see in the Catskills, he does what she wants to do in the Catskills. And he supports her in the Catskills, right? Like, he he supports her in what? The way she supports him in the Catskills, too. I'll let you finish, but I want to talk about yes. that because, oh, my goodness. Yes. yes, I will. We will pass on to that in a second. But, like, I, like, you see them grow. And they are, so, like, by the time we finish the second season, they are in a position to survive the Maisel House together. Like, the two of them would not have made it through the third season if they were not in a strong enough position to have clung to each other to have gotten the fuck out of Dodge. Excuse the profanity, but, like, that's the only way to describe it. Like, the Weissmen are, the Weissmen are tortured. Literally tortured. The cabbage in the punitive manner. Right. Right, get in, get in the cab, Abe, right? But I'm hungry. She's, she's made cabbage, move over, right? Like the two of them have survived this house together. Like in the scene where they're on the telephone in the fourth episode of the third season where she's physically clinging to him as if he is her lifeline, 
right? They're only in that position as that strong of a couple because of everything that they have gone through and how they've learned and grown. Which leads me to my second point, and it's the professional growth. And then I will totally let you talk about the Catskills because you absolutely should. Um, the thing that I think is so fascinating, if you compare him telling her about the Bell Labs job to him telling her about everything changing with the tomatoes getting thrown at him in the street, which isn't a job, but is pretty, I'm going to equate for this purpose because it is a professional thing. His op-ed is professional and it's within the larger conversation they have in 3-8 about their careers. In the first episode that he tells her about a job, right, Bell Labs, he's telling her. She's excited and he's trying to make her understand, but it's a surface level, right? He's more concerned about everybody celebrating him and celebrating this achievement and making a big deal out of it, right? He's upset. She's turning to their daughter and talking, right? And picking out the dress and leaving him there to like celebrate by himself, right? Like for him, it's his, pers- it's his personal achievement, right? She's happy for him and is ecstatic because thank God I no longer have to see him worry about Bell Labs, right? Like it's much more of the, the two of them as separate individuals, it's inclusive, it's supportive, it's very clearly loving, and I'm not saying that it's not, right? But when you compare it to 3-8, it's a whole different universe. He's actively reeling her in in 3-8 to his life. It's him explicitly making sure, no, you don't understand, okay, let me tell you. No, 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 I'm fine, I, I appreciate your concern, right? Like she's desperately seeking concern, right? All of her attention is on him. She has exciting professional news herself that she could share with him, right? We see her put down the stube and glassware, which how much money is that worth, right? She's created, right, what she literally tells Midge is their way out, right? She's got it all planned. She could share that with him, but she doesn't. She focuses all of her attention on him in this moment, in this professional moment where he's doing everything to reel her in. He tells her the detailed story in a way he doesn't with the Bell Labs. He tells her about the tomatoes and explains all the players. And in the end, he says, here we go, Rosie. It's the we that I think is so telling is it's taken this far into the show and they are that close in a personal capacity before she's finally not only just his equal partner in his life, she's his equal partner in his professional life. And that is such an interesting way that it's taken that 31 years to get to and it's taken them surviving hell together, but they're there, right? And that's why I think she is so giddy at the end of that scene is I think she finally recognizes it, it they're they are they've made it through that last thing and like the here we go rosie is such an important way of signaling and it's part of the reason why i love this relationship so much of just how important and supportive and complete they make each other okay you talk about the cat yes. skills because they and the cat yes. skills are just adorable as well okay literally the first thing that i thought of when you were talking about the fact that he, you know, supports what she wants to do through the cat skills, I was just thinking about the fact that she literally supports him. Because when he's absolutely plastered out of his mind on what, two separate occasions, not just one, but two, because there was the luau and then there the were fireworks. the fireworks, <laughs> she supported him stumbling home you know and there are like no reservations whatsoever about what he wants to do as well in the cat skills she goes Bet- to the luau his... and suffers the mazels alone she suffers the mazels alone at the luau but also um like i was thinking about you know just even his early morning calisthenics you know imagine him waking her up first thing in the morning to put that rubber on and go do his calisthenics bright and early like before the sun is even properly up and the fact that she hides the fact that he does it and tries to protect his dignity at the breakfast right exactly i mean (laughs) exactly i mean it is very very abundantly clear right that she is willing to go for to bat for him no matter the circumstances, no matter how weird his quirks are, I'm talking about the ropper. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I just think that's like fundamental to any type of loving relationship that you accept your partner for who they are with all their little weird quirks and habits and you love them through their not so great moments like when Abe is plastered out of his mind. Um, and he supports her when but- she is in Miami. 
Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's fully a level of respect that is there between the two of them in these circumstances, especially when one of them is in need in some way, shape, or form. And it's just so beautiful how they play off of each other to that end. Also, one of the things, this is a lot more of a small moment, but when Shirley calls the Weissman's house, um, following Midge and Joel splitting up in the first season, and they're both there listening in on the phone, and Abe is almost there, like, back up, like, he's listening in. He's not really saying anything. Rose is the one who's talking to Shirley. They put Shirley on speaker Because Abe wants her on speaker. Because Abe wants her on speaker. To me, that indicates, you know, that these conversations... Obviously, I mean, this is like a life-altering conversation because, you know... But she doesn't know that, right? Because to Abe and Rose, she went back, right? The two of them still right. think that she went to go get him back. right. Right. But, like, even still, like, this is kind of, like, a life-altering situation because, like, their son-in-law has cheated on their daughter and the consequences are grave, right? It's totally blowing up the life as they know it. So, I'm just thinking, I guess, you know, how he's there as a support system to Rose because this situation is tearing Rose up, I think, more than it's tearing him up. Rose has a harder time accepting the fact that you know, Joel and Midge are no longer together um, and wants them to reconcile because like we talked about in previous episodes, there's kind of this expectation from Rose that Midge will go back to Joel. Whereas at some point, Abe eventually just kind of resigns um, and seems to understand a little bit better that, you know, maybe they are separating um and pushes her in that direction uh it seems like Abe is just more so there to kind of be the emotional support to rose because it's something that's very very difficult for rose to digest until that moment when they're on the phone until he gets upset because midge doesn't do what he wants and then you watch rose balance shirley and abe So I think we're in a good place to wrap up this conversation because we are definitely out of time, but I really enjoy talking about Abe and delving a little bit deeper into him. Next time, we're going to jump into Rose and really explore who she is as a person since we've given you a little bit of a tantalizing sense of where we think she is on the spectrum of all these characters through our previous episodes. So join us next time when we do discuss Rose. In the meantime, please feel free to follow us on social media. Our handle on Instagram is at ty and gn pod like podcast shortened our collective twitter is the same as instagram at ty and gn pod and then we're each individually on twitter as i'm at mazelis and and emily i'm at the weissman how appropriate for this particular set of episodes too perfect so please feel free to follow us on social media and in the meantime We'll catch you real soon. Neither one of us are Mrs. Maisel. Thank Thank you you and good night. night.